0: If you have not read Esther, do it. It's ten chapters, you can read it in an hour, and it is excellent, excellent literature. Such plot twists, such fascinating characters, such an evil, evil villain. And uh, it is just a great story. Now, I'm going to tell you the story, but I still encourage you to read it. Uh, The reason we are talking about Esther is because uh, the story of Esther takes place right in the middle of our series timeline. We're talking about the return of the Jewish people from Babylonian exile, and so we're covering about a hundred year period in Israel's history, about 530 years before Christ to about 430 years before Christ, and the story of Esther takes place around 475 B.C., now, most of our series deals with Jewish people who have returned to the Promised Land, and so we, we're, we're talking mostly about what's happening inside Israel. But this story takes place far away from the Promised Land, in the capital of the Persian Empire, in the citadel of Susa, the capital of the Persians. Uh, We've mentioned before that uh, not all of the Jews returned to Israel when they had the chance. In fact, the majority it seems, probably the vast majority, remained in exile. Only about 50,000 Jews actually returned to the Promised Land. Uh, most of them stayed and we call that the Jewish diaspora, Jews living outside the Promised Land. And so this story of Esther, is uh, take, it tells us, gives us a little bit of insight into what's happening with uh, the people of God not living in Israel. Uh, this story takes place in Susa. Now, there are four main characters in the story, and the first character that we're introduced to is King Ahasuerus. Uh, scholars are uncertain as to whether this is uh, the Persian king, otherwise known as Xerxes the First, or whether it's one of his sons, Artaxerxes. Most conservative biblical scholars believe that this is Xerxes the First. The same king who tried to conquer the Greeks and his army was delayed by that 300 Spartans who laid their lives down to delay the advance of the Persians to give the Athenians a chance to regroup. This is the same king whose navy was utterly wiped out by the Athenians at the Battle of Salamis. It's the same king whose army was defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Palatea and who had to go home. A loser. Now, the Greeks didn't conquer the Persian Empire at that time. It took them another 150 years. But in Xerxes' day, the Persians gave up the, the dream of, of taking over the Greek Empire. Now, at the time of Esther, the Persian Empire is the greatest empire under the sun, and it's the greatest empire that had ever been. 127 provinces, uh, it stretched from India to Ethiopia and all the way up into Spain. Just a massive empire. And our story begins three years into King Ahasuerus's reign. We read this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the province were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Most likely, part of what they were doing during that 180 days is planning the invasion of Greece. Now at the end of this 180 days, King Ahasuerus threw a a special seven-day party for anyone living in Susa, great or small. Everyone was invited into the king's palace. And we read this. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Uh, there was just an open bar. Free open bar and food. Just come and enjoy yourself. Uh, at, the, at the king's largesse for seven days. As you can imagine, there were probably a whole lot of drunk people. And in fact, we read, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a nice way of saying he's intoxicated, right? Uh, he, in his inebriated merry mind, thought, you know what would be a great idea? If Vashti were to come out, the queen, in her royal crown and in her royal robes and she paraded herself in front of my guests so that everyone could see just how beautiful my queen is, that's a great idea. And so he sends his eunuchs uh, off to, to uh, bring Vashti to the party. Now Vashti is holding her own party with the women so the king's with the guys, and Vasti's holding her own party with the women. And you know what she says to the king? No, I'm not coming. And so the merry king at this became enraged. And his anger burned within him. He did not like being told no by the queen. So he's inebriated, and now he is furious... And so he asks his seven kind of right-hand men, the seven princes of the kingdom, what does the law say needs to happen to Vashti since she has defied the king's orders? Mekuman, one of the seven princes, stands up and says, O king, Vashti has not just wronged you, she's wronged the entire empire. Because word of what she has done will spread. Make no doubt about it. And our wives and the wives of every man in the kingdom are going to begin to say no to us. Because they're going to say, well, Vashti didn't obey the king and she got away with it. And so we don't need to obey our husbands. And Mechumen says, there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. (laughs) This is going to disrupt households all across the empire. This is bad. So it's not just bad for you. It's bad for all of us. It's bad for your whole empire. Something has to be done. And and here's what I recommend. Number one, depose the queen. Take the crown from Vashti. Number two, make a law that says she may never again see your face. She can't be in your presence ever again. Now, word of that will get out And all of a sudden, our wives are going to respect us, right? All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now remember, the king is intoxicated and furious. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mekuman proposed. And so word went out into the empire. Vashti has been deposed, and um and she can no longer be in my presence and men and husbands need to be in charge of their own families well now the it it seems that the story fast forward about 3 years because the next thing we read is this now after these things when the anger of king Ahasuerus had abated so what happened in the intervening 3 years most likely Ahasuerus and his army went and attacked the Greeks, failed, and now they're back at Susa and the king is, uh, you know, he's not feeling all that great. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And he's probably thinking, you know what, I overreacted. I wish I hadn't made a law that Vashti can't be, you know, with me anymore. I miss her. By the way, when he made a law, he made it in a law of the Myr- of the Medes and Persians, which could not be revoked. It was They were irrevocable laws. Not even the king could revoke his own law. So, you know, in his inebriated wrath, he makes this law, and now he's kind of regretting it. Well, then the king's young men who attended him said, they're probably noticing that the king's not, you know, he's a little bit down, and they're trying to... Cheer them up, and so they say, "Hey, King, we got this. We got a good idea. What if you, what if you sent officials out into the empire, into all 127 provinces, and their whole goal is to scour the empire for the most beautiful women, virgins, and they'll round them up and they bring them back to Susa and they put them underneath the charge of uh, uh, Hegai, the eunuch, and then from that." pool of beautiful, young, virgin women, you select a new queen. Basically, king. We got this idea for a, a program called The Bachelor. And, uh, and it's going to be fun for you. And he, he says, that's a great idea. Go make that happen. We're now introduced to the second character in the story, and that's Esther. Esther is a young... Jewish woman living in Susa, the the capital. And the Bible says that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Esther was a knockout. And Esther is noticed by the king's officials. And so they round her up and they take her back to the palace. I doubt she volunteered. right? I doubt a lot of these young women volunteered. She, is, um, she wins favor with Hegai, the eunuch in charge of the virgins. And, and as a result, he- Hegai quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So Hegai gives Esther, you know, kind of a leg up. I think, he- I think Hegai wants Esther to, to win queen and that tells you something about uh, Esther's character that she wins favor uh, so quickly with Haggai. Now, each one, each of these women spent an entire year getting ready for their night with the king six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. So, when you're complaining that your wife's taking too long to get ready, you know, it's a little faster than that, right? An entire year of beauty treatments and then they get their night with the king. And the Bible tells us they go in in the evening to the king and in the morning they leave. And they don't go back to the court of the virgins. They then go to the court of the concubines and they were under the stewardship of another, of a different eunuch. And they never saw the king again unless the king asked for them by name. I wouldn't want this life. Esther gets her night with the king, and we read The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. What is God up to? Young Jewish woman, now the queen of the most of the mightiest empire under the sun. Is that just coincidence? We are now introduced to the third character of the story, Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, but he's also a father figure. Esther's parents have died, and Mordecai has taken Esther in and raised her as his own daughter. Mordecai uh, seems to be an official in the the king's palace because he's in and out of the palace a lot. Uh, now, Mordecai has told Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, don't tell them what family you're from, and so he doesn't, but he's concerned about Esther, and he's, every day he goes to check on her, but it's, it's not face-to-face conversations with Esther, it's always through an intermediary. I think he's trying to keep his relationship with her a secret. Mordecai, because he's around the king's palace a lot, he uh, one day he overhears a plot to kill the king. Two of the king's eunuchs are angry and they want to kill the king. And so he reports this conspiracy to Esther, and Esther tells the king in Mordecai's name. And they do a little inquiry and find out, yes, this is a real threat. They kill, uh, kill the two eunuchs, and what Mordecai did was written down in the Chronicles of the King. That'll come in... Uh, a little bit important a little later. We're now introduced at this point to the villain. And he's quite the villain. Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Which means he is a descendant of Agag. Agag was king of the Amalekites when Saul was king of Israel. Amalekites were enemies of Israel. They tried to kill off the Jewish people when God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They tried to kill them off, and as a result, God said, Israel, when you get strong enough, I want you to wipe off, wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. God had put them under the ban. Well, King Saul, the first king of Israel, he, he was able to defeat the Amalekites. He captured King Agag, but he disobeyed God. Rather than kill Agag as God had commanded, he allowed Agag to live. Now, the prophet Samuel, a little while later, uh, made put that right. He hacked King Agag to pieces. Well, this is Haman, a descendant of King Agag. So, not all the Amalekites were killed, and you have to imagine that That uh, Haman knew his history. And he knew that the Jews had hacked great-great-grandpa to pieces. He did not like the Jews. King Ahasuerus elevated Haman to second-in-command underneath only himself. Uh, He was in charge of all the king's officials. In fact, King Ahasuerus said all other officials need to bow and pay homage to Haman when he comes by. And everyone did that except Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow and pay homage to Haman. Now the other king's officials uh, repeatedly asked Mordecai, Why are you de- defying the king's command? You you need to bow down, and pay homage. What are you doing? And Mordecai explained, I'm a Jew. And I'm not going to bow to this guy. Now, we don't know whether that spe- I'm a Jew and I won't bow to any human or whether it's I'm a Jew, and so I'm not going to bow down to an Amalekite, an enemy of the Jewish people, uh, you know, a people under whom God has uh, placed the ban, upon whom God has placed the ban. But word gets to Haman that Mordecai won't bow and pay homage to him. And we read... And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman says, it's not enough for me to just kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill every Jew in the entire kingdom. Now, he's crafty, and so I'm sure he chooses his timing well. And essentially what he says to the king is, uh, oh, by the way, king, uh, there are these people. They're scattered throughout your empire. They, they don't obey the laws of the kingdom. They, they kind of have their own law. And it's just, it's really not in the best interest of the king to leave these people, to let these people be in the kingdom. And so I, they just need to be killed off. We need to get rid of these people. They're a a problem. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put 10,000 talents of silver in your personal treasury, O king, to help fund the the removal of this problem from the kingdom. Now, King Ahasuerus does not appear to be very wise. He seems to be easily intoxicated, easily angered, and easily manipulated. And so... You know, he kind of trusts Haman, and he just he takes off his signet ring, hands it to Haman, says, do whatever you think is best. And so Haman writes up a law that says, and he stamps it with the king's signet ring, so it's one of the laws of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked, and he says on the 13th day of Adar, the Jewish people will be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and anyone who does that may may pillage their goods. You can take whatever they have. Now, how did they choose the 13th of Adar? By the casting of lots, or pur, P-U-R, the casting of pur. And uh, that's important because of the Feast of Purim, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Well, when word gets out uh, of of this law, as you can imagine, the Jews throughout the empire are are very, very uh, devastated. Many of them put on sackcloth and ashes, and they begin to fast. Now, obviously, they're, they're beseeching God for rescue. Mordecai himself puts on uh, sackcloth, and he begins to fast outside the, the king's palace gates. You can't, if you have sackcloth, you can't go inside the king's palace gates. But word gets back to Esther of what Mordecai is doing. And she's, so she sends somebody to ask him, what are you doing? And he says, he tells her what's what's happened, and he then directs her, I want you to go to the king and and uh, beseech him on behalf of your people. Go ask the king to stop this. Esther sends word back to Mordecai, uh, Wait, a, everybody knows there's a law. And the law is if you go into the presence of the king uninvited, there's only one rule, Death. Unless he extends the royal scepter and shows you mercy. Translation, I don't want to put my life at risk. You know? And she said, by the way, he hasn't asked for me in 30 days. So, he doesn't seem you know, to be missing me all that much. Maybe I've lost favor with him. Well, here is Mordecai's reply to Esther. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Somebody's going to find out you're a Jew. A lot of people are jealous that you're queen. Somebody's going to take you out. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Well, that's interesting. Why is Mordecai confident that relief and deliverance will rise from the for the Jews because Mordecai believes the promises of God and he knows the scriptures and he knows that God has promises promised that his people won't be overcome, there will always be a remnant preserved because God has a purpose to bless the world through the Jews, ultimately through the coming of the Messiah our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, right? He knows that, he believes that, God's going to deliver his people. But if, if, you don't, if you're silent, you'll miss an opportunity to be a part of that and there's no guarantee that you and I aren't going to get killed off. And then he says this, and this is a very famous line from the Bible. You might want to uh, underline. Esther four fourteen. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, Consider where you are. Consider your social location. You're queen. Maybe God made you queen and put you where you are precisely so you could save his people and beseech the king on our behalf. Now, I love the fact that he doesn't say, Esther, I have a word from the Lord for you. I know for sure that God has called you to go talk to the king and risk your life. And he doesn't presume to know for sure. And what he says is, who knows? Or other translations, perhaps. And that's real life as a Christian, right? So often as a Christian, uh, we want the word from God that says, do this. Don't do that. Then we can be confident of, you know, success. But so often, God leaves it up to us to ask the question, am I where I am because God wants me to do something? In other words, you are, and I am, we are all uniquely situated, best situated to address certain evils, and do certain goods. You know, you have a position in your family. You have a position in your workplace. You have a position within certain friendships. You, you, you are placed somewhere. And, and as a result of that, you're best placed to do some things. And you have to wrestle with the question. <laughs> uh, perhaps God has given me this opportunity in order to do that good thing. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Fast. We're gonna, For three days we're going to ask God for help. We're going to ask for his favor. And no, I don't have a, defi- a, a divine word from the Lord, but there's an evil that needs to be addressed and I'm going to step in by faith. And if I perish, I perish. I'm not guaranteed success the way we count success, but I know it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to leave the outcome to God. That's, that's the Christian life most of the time, Right? And we, we, need to be care- we need to not demand a specific word from the Lord before we act. We have to be willing to say, here's where I am, here's what God has given me, there is the need, God help me, and I'm going to step toward it. For a year, I prayed for an e- a year before planting Clearwater Church, God, would you please tell me, yes or no, do I do this, should I do this? I got no word from the Lord. <laughs> I prayed fervently. And I didn't get it. And finally, I had to, I just said, okay, I know from the New Testament, the revealed word of the Lord says that God's in the business of planting churches. I know that He's given me certain giftings and passions, seems to have equipped me to uh, I seem to have the, the gifting to plant a church. Anchorage needs more churches, the world needs more churches. I'm gonna do it. And and if we have to shut the doors two years from now because people don't come and the money's not around. Is God going to be mad at me? Oh, no, I will have taken a step of faith. I'm gonna, you know, leave the outcome of the Lord. Now, here we are, nine years later, praise God, right? But if I perish, I perish. We have to be willing to take risks as Christians uh, in order to be on mission with God. Well, after three days of fasting, Esther puts on her royal robes. And goes before the king uninvited. And we read that uh, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to scepter the golden, Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. I think he was impressed. With the risk she took. And he said you know what? What do you want? Uh, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Esther said what I want. Is I want you and Haman to come to a banquet. I've prepared for you today. That sounds pretty good. King says let's do it. And so he and Haman go, and they have a banquet, and uh, after the banquet, when the wine's, you know, being drunk, the king again asks, what's your wish, what's your request, Esther, up to half the kingdom? She said, come back tomorrow, I'm going to make you another banquet, you and Haman come back tomorrow, then I'll tell you. Sure, another banquet, sounds good. Uh, By the way, I think Esther's being crafty, isn't she? She is, uh, she's creating anticipation. She's serving him. She's in front of him, winning his favor. I'm sure she was showing off her beauty and her, whatever those women, whatever you women do to make us go crazy. So, well, Haman, Haman leaves the, he leaves this banquet with the queen on cloud nine. He cannot believe it. I am, the, the queen invited me and only me to join her and the king. This is, I, I am rocking life. And he's on cloud nine. He walks out and then he sees Mordecai and Mordecai won't bow or pay homage to him. And he goes from cloud nine and he just crashes. He goes home. He's so upset. He calls his friends, calls his wife and he, and he, he recounts to them, I have ten sons. I'm unbelievably wealthy. I'm almost the most powerful person in the entire empire. The queen invites only me to join her and the king. I should be the happiest man on the planet. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That Mordecai is just sucking the joy out of my life. And uh, Haman's wife and and friends say, Would you just get rid of Mordecai? Kill him. Kill him tomorrow. In fact, here's what they say. Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast deal with Mordecai, deal with him tomorrow morning, and then you can go to tomorrow's feast with the king and queen and and just be happy. And Haman says, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So he makes, you know, in his heart, he decides, first thing in the morning, I'm going to go to the king and ask for the, the king to give me permission to kill Mordecai. Well, it just so happens that night the king can't sleep. So the king asks that the chronicles of the king be read to him, probably thinking, that'll put me to sleep. And it just so happens that one of the stories read is the story of how Mordecai foiled the plot to kill the king. And and uh, the king now it's morning. The story's been read and the king says, "Uh by the way, what did we ever do for Mordecai?" And the answer is nothing. Well, that's not that's not good. You you need to you need to uh Uh, applaud, you need to reward loyalty if you want to keep people being loyal. So, right then, it just so happens that right then, Haman comes into the court, intending to ask to kill Mordecai, and the king uh, turns to Haman and says, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is obviously about me. Well, I'm going to tell him what I want. And he said, okay, here's what you do, king. You you get one of your royal robes, one you yourself have worn, and you put it on that guy. You go get one of your horses, one of the horses you yourself have ridden. You put him on that. You get one of the top officials in your, in your administration to lead that horse around the city, proclaiming... Um, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman's thinking, this is going to happen to me. (laughs) Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Can you feel that? Can you feel that? Haman's coming in to ask to kill Mordecai. Now he's got to go parade him around, and he does. I mean, it's the, word, it's the you know, edict of the king. So he has to dress Mordecai and put him on the horse and lead him around making this proclamation. When it's over, he goes home with his head covered in shame. He is so distressed. And at home, you would think he would find comfort in se- instead. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Another feast. Now they're drinking wine again. Lots of wine is drunk by these Persians. What is your queen? Uh, what is your request? And uh, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled." Then Queen Esther answered him, "If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people." For my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. The king comes back into the room and uh, apparently uh, Haman, while begging for his life, has kind of collapsed onto the couch and he's clinging to Esther. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. They knew he was done for. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, uh, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. Most likely, by the way, it wasn't the gallows. Uh, The way the the Persians uh, killed people is, most like it was a stake, almost seventy-five to hundred feet high, and they impaled people, lifted it, and jammed it into the ground. The Hebrew is ambiguous. So Haman is uh, he is skewered on that same post, uh, same tree that he had uh, he had made to kill Mordecai. What a reversal of fortunes, right? What a reversal of fortunes. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, this stuff is awesome. God is crafting a very good story. Well, the king gives Esther all of Haman's possessions. The king gives Mordecai Haman's position. All of a sudden, Mordecai's number two in the whole Persian Empire. So the queen's a Jew. The the the, the right-hand man to the king is a Jew. And we are told that a lot of people in the Persian Empire converted to Judaism. It doesn't mean they became ethnic Jews, it means they became believers and followers of the God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think they saw in this reversal of fortunes proof of, uh, uh, of God's reality. Now, the law to kill the Jews on the 13th of Adar was irrevocable. So what the king did is he said to Mordecai and Esther, you may write a countervailing law, a countermanding law. And so what they did is they said, okay, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews may arm themselves and may uh, fight and overcome their enemies and pillage them. Well, now everybody in the, uh, now everybody in the empire knows which side the king is really on. And so when the 13th of Adar comes, the Jews are not destroyed. The Jews, in fact, prevail against their enemies. Uh, It seems like they actually went out and uh, kind of identified and took out the enemies of the Jews throughout the entire uh, empire. Haman's entire family was wiped out. Uh, A reversal of fortunes. Well, um, Mordecai and Esther... Enact a feast to remember this great salvation of the Jews, and it's the feast of Purim, and the Jews still uh, they still uh, celebrate that today. And Purim comes from Pur, which is the casting of lots, and I think it's a play on words. What it's saying, so here it's the feast. In a sense, it's the feast of, of chance, but the Jews know it's not chance. Their their fate is not. Uh, in the hands of chance, uh, their fate is in the hands of God who loves them and has made promises to them and is faithful to them. Christian, hear that. Hear that. Your fate, what happens to you day by day, moment by moment, is not up to fate. It is up to God, the sovereign, who loves you and has made promises to you. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God knows you. He has good plans for you. He has made promises to you. And He is working out His good plans in your life. The Feast of Purim. Final note. King Ahasuerus, the most powerful king on the, under the sun at that time, you did not go before him unless he invited you upon pain of death. And there is a greater king, the king of the universe, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the creator of the universe, who actually invites you and all people to come. Through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in my Son, Jesus. Make Him Lord and Savior of your life. And then come to me. You have unfettered access. Daily access. The Bible says we come boldly before the throne of grace. Not when we're good enough. I made that mistake when I was younger. Oh, when I'm prayed up, when I've read my Bible, when I've led the little old, helped the little old lady across the street, then I can come to God. No. We don't come to God because we're good enough. We come to God because Christ is good enough. And we are united with Christ by faith. And so he says, come, because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And your wickedness is forgiven. And so the king of the universe says, come to me. So, if you're listening today, and you, and you have not Approach the King of Kings and Lord of Lords through faith in His Son, Jesus. That's your next step. Repent of your sins. Make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. And then come. Come and enjoy unhindered, unbroken fellowship with God. What a wonderful story, right? Don't just take my word for it. Go read it. It's awesome. So let's pray. Take a moment as the band's coming back. Christian, how do you need this truth that God is sovereign? What happens to you is not the hand of fate. It's the hand of a God who loves you and has made promises to you and is faithful to you. How does that truth change what you're going through right now? How does it it change the way you think about it? How does it change the way you feel about it? How does it change the way you're going to respond to it? Sit on that. If you're not yet a Christian, God invites you to come through faith in His Son, Jesus. He's done everything that's necessary. He has extended to you in advance that golden scepter. But you have to approach and touch it. And you do that by repenting of your sins and making Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Lord and Savior of your life. And then come, there's peace with God. Do that. In Jesus' name, amen.